news, the beta reader matchup is now open for March. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre and time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 31st of March, with the matchup emails going out on the 1st of April. The only April Fools will be those who haven't signed up. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the Beta Reader Matchup tab, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Hello, listeners. This is your co-host, Cece, and I'm so excited to tell you about my upcoming webinar, Writing Tension. Join me on Thursday, April 11th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time via Zoom to learn all about creating tension, conflict, and stakes in a story. This is a super popular writing webinar I offer, and it's filled with expert breakdowns, practical tips, formulas for cracking these elements, and real examples from novels that will help you dial up the tension in your story in actionable ways. And this year, I'm doing something extra. On the Monday after the webinar, we're having a live, cozy 90-minute Q&A session in which you'll get a chance to ask your questions about the webinar. That means we'll get to hang out for two days total. And if you can't attend the webinar, and or the cozy Q&A session, don't worry. They will be recorded and shared with everyone who's registered. There are limited spots for this webinar in this new format. So if you're interested, check out the link on my Instagram page and sign up. The handle is at agent. That's at C-E-C-E-L-Y-R-A agent. I hope to see you there. there and welcome to our show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm Bianca Murray and I'm joined by Carly Waters and Cece Lira from PS Literary Agency. Applications are now open for Author Accelerator's 2022 Manuscript Incubator, where 16 writers will get seven months of one-on-one book coaching through a revision and the opportunity to present their revised manuscript to a panel of agents and publishers. To celebrate applications opening up and to give you an idea of how a book coach can help you with the revision process, Author Accelerator is hosting a free online workshop on July 8th called Ready, Set, Revise, How to Plan and Revise a Novel or Memoir. If you're ready to tackle a revision head on and you want some added support, head to authoraccelerator.com slash manuscript hyphen incubator to learn more about the incubator and to save your spot for this summer's free event. Today's guest grew up in Kansas City, later moving to the Pacific Northwest where the mountains and Puget Sound became home. Beyond writing, she loves to run, rock climb and explore the great outdoors with her daughter and husband. She is an RN and recently finished her degree as a nurse practitioner. When holding still, which isn't often, you'll find a book in her hand and a cat or two or both in her lap. She writes suspense and thriller and is the host of Hashtag Mom's Writers Club on Twitter and YouTube. 
Her debut novel, Make Me Disappear, is a twisty psychological thriller about a woman on the edge who is willing to do anything to escape her sociopathic, potentially dangerous boyfriend, including arranging her own kidnapping. It's my pleasure to welcome Jessica Payne. Jessica, welcome back to the show. Hi, Bianca. I am so excited to be back with you here today. For our listeners who've been listening for a while, you will remember Jessica was on the show last year when I interviewed her in her capacity as the host of Mom's Writers Club. And we discussed all the challenges that mothers face in terms of trying to write, finding time for themselves, carving out that time, etc., etc. And then just after that interview aired, Jessica got her book deal. So Jessica, will you take our listeners through that? Because I think that's the favorite part of all of our listeners is hearing how somebody experienced their success, how they got their first yes. I would love to talk about that. It is a story that still makes me really happy and excited. (laughs) So I signed with my agent in February of 2021, and then, let's see, we spent a few months revising, and we went out on submission in the summer, and we pretty quickly found out that an editor was interested, and things moved along pretty fast, and I remember... The moment I heard that it was going to acquisitions, I was out on a run with my daughter and I got the text from my agent and (laughs) I was just so excited. We actually stopped and like took a photo to immortalize the moment. And then I got my offer soon after. And yeah, it was just really exciting. It was for a two week deal, which felt really good as a debut to get that offer. And I got to get on the phone with my future editor and I thought we had a pretty good connection and she was just very excited about my book and she got what I was trying to do with it. And it's been kind of a wild ride since then getting it ready to go and also working on book two. And now we're so close to publication and I can hardly believe it. And I recently got to see my cover for the first time and heard the narrators for my audiobook. And it's just like one thing after another. And it's like a dream come true. And it's one of those things where I'm really glad I kept going. And I would encourage anyone who's listening, like just keep working at it because it took a while to get here. Yeah, that's the thing. For very few writers, is the journey to publication an easy one? It is always a struggle. And I think besides getting that call with the offer, I think the second most exciting thing is when the book is printed, normally like a month ahead of publication or whatever, you get the book and you get to hold it in your hands. And that always is super, super surreal to think about all these hours of talking to your imaginary friends by yourself actually manifests as something physical. And that's always incredibly exciting. So that hasn't happened yet for you, no? Very soon. I should have physical copies of my book in my hand any day now, pretty much. And yeah, I cannot wait. I see all these unboxing videos and I fully intend to make one as well. Amazing. I never do the unboxing videos because I can't be asked to put on makeup and do my hair for that stuff. And I just, I hate it, but I do love the, uh, I really do love the, the actual experience of that. So in terms of how you got your agent, Jessica, because we kind of skipped past that, could you tell us a bit more about that? How many agents you went out on, kind of how you pitched this, because there's some awesome comps for this. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? And then also how long you worked on the manuscript by yourself before you pitched it? I would love to. 
So this was my fourth book, just to kind of put some perspective in there. My first two books were actually in a different genre. It was urban fantasy, which was not selling very well at the time. And I was getting almost no response from agents. I did get a few kind rejections and a few people who said, I love your writing, but I can't sell this. So by the time I was done querying my second book, I knew that I really needed to do something else. And I started thinking about what do I love about writing and what do I love about reading and what excites me? And I came to the conclusion that I really enjoyed, well, because I had a small child at the time, like a a (laughs) six-month-old, I really enjoyed listening to thrillers. And I so admired the way the authors could twist and turn their stories. And I decided I wanted to see if I could figure out how to do that. And it felt like a big challenge, but I've never been one to back away from a challenge. So I started figuring out how to do it. My third book, I called it Lady Justice. It got 15 requests, which after getting a total of one between my first two books was huge. Like I felt like I was on the right path. And I think I also just got better as a writer. And I think that that is a huge part of it. It's hard to shelve a book, but you just, you learn so much with each book. So sometimes I think the best thing an author can do is to write the next book. So with my fourth book, which was Make Me Disappear. I I don't know what it was about that book, but it just felt so different. The characters were totally formed in my head from day one, which is not always the case for me. And it's dual point of view. It's main female character, Noelle, who is a Seattle nurse. And then it's her rich, handsome, but also twisted, manipulative boyfriend, Daniel. And he is the other point of view. So you get to kind of see both sides of their relationship. And that felt like a big risk. I'd never written dual point of view. And I'd like, it's the combination of first, second, you know, where you're the whole you thing. So that was a little scary. I wasn't sure if agents were going to like that, but I decided to lean into the things that scare me. And I think that that has served me very well. I wrote that book in less than three months. I don't remember exactly how long it took, but it just flowed. And everybody hears that and they're like, oh my gosh, you wrote that book so fast. But you know what? I spent so much time revising it. I don't know (laughs) that that was actually, you know, something to brag about. So I did start querying that pretty fast. The initial version, I didn't think needed a whole lot of revising, which is also something that was different for me. I queried for about four months before I got my first request for a phone call. And that moment was just amazing. I literally burst into tears and texted all my critique partners and rushed in to tell my husband. I think over the course of that time, I sent, oh shoot, I can't remember the exact number. I think about 75 queries and not all at once. They were very much paced out. I made sure I was getting requests before I sent more. I sent out, I think, 10 in that initial round and got a couple of requests and sent out 10 more and so on and so forth. I'd gotten quite a few full requests. One thing I found was different with this book. I was getting rejections, but they weren't rejections that were just form letters. They were feedback from agents on what wasn't working for them. Nobody straight up said, this doesn't work for me. They they actually had specific feedback or said, I remember one agent, this was like so heartwarming and helpful at the moment. It was so hard to get a rejection. She said, I love your book, but I don't know how to sell it. So anyway, I got my first request for a call and had that call and I'd wait a whole four days for it, which was like the longest four days of my life and quickly got two more requests for a call. So I talked to two more agents. I got two more offers and I've talked to a few people who are at that point 
who have requests for calls, they're really worried that they won't know which agent to pick when they get multiple offers. And at least for me and for most of the people I've talked to, you definitely just have a moment where you're like, this person is going to be my agent. So definitely take notes and ask all the hard questions and make sure that you are thinking about what's important to you in an agent relationship. But for me, when I spoke to Kimberly Brower on the phone, I knew immediately that I was going to sign with her. I really liked that she knew my genre well. That was really important to me. And she's very editorial, which I didn't realize how important that was to me, but it's become very important. And I just felt like she was 100% honest and put everything out there and that I didn't have any like lingering doubts or questions. Like I knew exactly what I was getting. I knew exactly what her plan was. And I wouldn't say that I'm like a control freak, but I'm definitely a little type A in that way and that I really want to know what's going on and I want everything laid out there. And she really did that for me. And she's wonderful about communicating and getting back to me quickly, which was also important to me. So once I signed with her, we did spend several months on revisions. The second half of the book took a little more of a romantic suspense turn in the original version. So she helped me revise that. So when I, yeah, when I said I wrote it in less than three months, I then spent many months revising. And then we went out on sub in the summer, which sounded really scary because everybody says that that is not a time to go on sub. But we actually got pretty quick response and got our offer in six to eight weeks, maybe somewhere in there. And yeah, everything's been pretty good since then. I, you know, everybody has little bumps in the road of publishing, but overall it has been wonderful. And my publisher has been great to work with and I can't believe my book's about to come out. <laughs> that's an amazing journey to publication. And that's a question we get a lot is how do I know if I'm getting close? And exactly what you've just said is how you know you're getting close. Because if you are not even getting requests for full, then that's probably a sign that your query letter is not doing what you're wanting your query letter to do or that your opening pages aren't doing that. Once you start getting requests for fulls, then you know, okay, my query letter and my opening pages are good because people are intrigued and they're wanting to see it. But then if you're getting requests for fulls and then you're not getting any requests for a phone call offer of representation, then you know, okay, my opening pages and my query is good, but there's something within the manuscript itself and I would dare say within the first 50 pages, because I don't think agents have got time to keep reading the entire manuscript if the first 50 pages, you know, aren't great. And I feel like if they love the first 50 pages, even if the rest is problematic, they might consider working with you on it. And once you get those requests for phone calls, I'm assuming after you got that first request for a phone call, you nudged the other people who had requested fulls. Is that how it worked? Because I find publishing's like dating. It's like people want you when everyone else wants you. It's the craziest thing. So the minute you let people know that someone else finds you attractive, everybody finds you attractive. Or was it just that you got these requests for phone calls just quite by coincidence? <laughs> I have to laugh about your dating comparison, but it's so true. It definitely felt that way. So I got my first request for a phone call. And I think I had that fear everyone does. Like I have heard of someone getting like a rejection over the phone, which I'm sure like almost never happens, but I have heard of it, but like a very nice rejection. And I've heard of people getting R&Rs over the phone. So I think I was a little bit, I was hopeful, but also tried to keep my expectations in check. So I did not contact anyone until after the phone call. 
But uh, after I got off that call, I had like 45 minutes before my daughter was going to wake up from her nap. And I emailed everyone in the, that 45 minute time. I just like whipped through it. And yes, I I contacted everyone. I would highly recommend to any listener, you know, when you get to that point, contact agents that even only have your query letter, because I got five more full requests doing that. And one of my offers came from someone who had only had my query letter. But yes, I contacted them all. It was amazing how quickly agents respond when you have an offer of rep. I immediately got more requests. The people who already had fulls or partials replied very quickly saying, you know, I'll, I'll read it in the next few days. It's like a, it's like a wildfire catching. And yes, when once one person wants you, it seems like everybody wants to at least see what's going on over there. So it was it was nice to feel wanted after literally hundreds of rejections. Yeah, and that happens as well. For our listeners, it often happens when you go out on submission to editors. People are busy. They've got a huge stack of stuff. The minute the one person's done the work and has read it and wants it, then all the other editors are like, okay, so this person did the heavy lifting for us. They did the work for us and they've established that the book is good. So now we're going to quickly try and get to it, which is, you know, what happens with a lot of agents as well. They'll suddenly prioritize it because somebody else wants it. And that's really when things speed up. Up until then, everything's kind of glacial, which is incredibly frustrating. But yes, once you start getting specific feedback from agents in their rejections, you know you are super, super close. So for the listeners who are always asking about that, I feel like that is that natural evolution. I feel like if you're getting very specific rejections, you are so, so close. And after four books, if you get that close after four books, you just freaking keep going. Now, Jessica, are you considering sending or revising your urban fantasies? Because it feels like urban fantasy has become a lot more popular lately. I know that I sold my contemporary fantasy end of last year. So I think people need escapism now more than anything, not to say the thriller genre doesn't offer that. So is that something you're considering or, or have you decided those books just aren't good enough and cannot be resuscitated? Well, first of all, Bianca, your book sounds so good and I'm so excited to order it. And I'm so happy for you. Thank you. But I haven't put a whole lot of thought into that. As they are now, they would definitely have to be completely rewritten. I was definitely a baby writer at the time. And I think as a new writer in the thriller genre, I really am probably going to focus on that genre for now. I would not be opposed to dipping my toes into that genre in the future. There are a lot of things I really loved about it. But I also think that genre has changed a lot from when I was reading a lot of urban and contemporary fantasy. And I don't think I have kept up with it. I think it's so important to know your genre well. And I think that would require me to spend a lot more time reading it, which honestly, I don't have that time right now. But I actually am talking to a friend of mine about us potentially co-writing in a different genre than what either of us write in. And that's really all I can say about it. But there are some other things I'd like to do at some point moving forward. I don't know if that it'll be urban or contemporary fantasy. I'm, I feel like I'm still figuring out how to write thriller. Like I've done it and everybody thinks it's wonderful. And I think it's really good too. But I think it's like anything, you always have room to improve. And I'm still really focused on that. Yeah. And now you're writing that second book under contract, which is a very different beast. I think my first book in total took three years to write. And the second book, which I sold on three chapters and a synopsis, I think I was given a deadline of six months to write that book. And it was 120,000 words when I finished it. So that's very different. How are you finding that now? Well, the second book is written. So I, I find it okay. 
I did finish it recently and got it sent off to my editor, and I'm currently doing developmental edits, so it's going okay. I think my biggest challenge right now is that I have all of this prep for Make Me Disappear coming out so soon, and for the first time, figuring out how to communicate with bookstagrammers who are wonderful and amazing. And I started a launch team, which has been such a great experience and has been, you know, the nice thing about a launch team is these are all people who want to support you. So I think launching a book can be such an intimidating thing. So being surrounded by people who really care about you and who are on, you know, 100% on your side is a great way to get started with that. So I think the hardest part has just been that I have a book coming out very soon. And I'm also working on book two at the same time, trying to find that balancing act. Yeah. And my advice to listeners, don't wait until you've sold a book to start building relationships with bookstagrammers. I'm not saying Jessica did that. It's just because she mentioned that now. But if you are busy writing a manuscript, be on Instagram now. Find bookstagrammers, interact with them, especially bookstagrammers who love reading in your genre, chat to them, etc. So that down the line, when you get that offer of representation, when your book has been sold, it's much more organic than reaching out to them and being, well, you know, I have a book coming out, would you be interested, etc. So that's something, it feels like so much is out of our control as we wait for that, yes, but there's a lot of things that are in your control that are going to make your life so much easier down the line. Just before we go, Jessica, I just want to say to the listeners, Make Me Disappear was wonderful. It was so twisty and turny. I loved the different POVs. And what Jessica was talking about is a hybrid first and second person that Caroline Kepnes did in You. So it's this character who's kind of referring to themselves in the first person, but they're also speaking at another character. And that is where the You comes in. So they don't make the reader the You. They're directing everything at this other character. And in this book, it's Daniel who's directing everything at Noel when he speaks to her as the You. So not an easy POV to, to pull off, but one that Jessica did incredibly, incredibly well. So we will be posting that on our affiliate page. Look for that, read it, uh, support Jessica. It's wonderful to see one of our own succeeding so wonderfully in this way and somebody who does so much for writers in the process. So congratulations, Jessica, and we wish you much, much success with it. Thank you so much, Bianca. It's been great to be on here with you again. And I really appreciate all you have done for the community as well. And thanks for talking about my book and taking the time to read it. I really appreciate it. Hi everyone, it's Cece. Question, what do all great stories have in common? They make us feel, which is why the ability to weave emotion into a story is so important. With that in mind, I'm teaching a class called Writing Emotion, Weaving Emotion into Your Story on June 2nd. Join me to learn about active emotions versus passive emotions when to show and when to tell regarding emotionality, the most common mistakes and challenges in writing emotions, and how to turn them into successes. We'll cover techniques on how to effectively convey emotion in a way that keeps the reader turning the pages of a story with lots of examples from some amazing books. And of course, we'll have time for a Q&A session. Writers of all genres are invited to attend, as knowing how to weave in emotion is a superpower useful for all storytellers. For information on how to register, please head over to my Instagram or Twitter page, click on the link in my bio, and follow the instructions. And don't worry, 
If you're busy on June 2nd, the class will be recorded and a recording will be sent to everyone who is registered 24 hours later. I hope to see you there. My youngest son starts kindergarten this year. I can't believe it. One of the tricky things, though, about my kids being in French immersion school and me not having French as a language myself is worrying about how we're going to assist with homework as they get bigger. They're young now, but I see it coming. We are very lucky, though, to live in Ottawa, which is a bilingual city of a million people. And we have bilingual friends and francophone friends. So it's going to be really easy for our kids to pick it up at a young age through school and sports activities. But me, on the other hand, growing up where French class wasn't taken too seriously and we goofed off. I am so sorry, Madame Corrigan. We're going to have to make up the difference. And that is where Rosetta Stone comes in as the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. And it truly immerses you in the language you want to learn. Immersion is a proven way to learn a language. Instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals, reading stories, participating in dialogues, and other practical language skills to fast track your ability to communicate fluently. There are no English translations in the product. You're getting trained to listen, speak, read, write, and think in your new language. Rosetta Stone users especially love the speech recognition feature. As you practice speaking, Rosetta Stone uses advanced voice recognition technology to match your audio to audio from native speakers, and then gives you feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. So you can really hone those pronunciations, which we know is key to sounding fluent. It offers 25 languages from Spanish, French, Italian, German, Chinese, Korean, Japanese, even Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. This is the best language program to get because they have been the expert for 30 years and used by millions, thousands of companies and government organizations use Rosetta Stone to support language learning training online. Of all the apps, it is the best at speech recognition technology, so it compares your sound waves to those of native speakers. Rosetta Stone has a patented speech recognition engine called True Accent built into the program. So as you practice speaking, you're going to get your feedback on how well you're pronouncing words, other language apps use speech recognition to detect what you said, but Rosetta Stone tells you how well you said it compared to native speakers. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Think about the cost of a one-month language course. Think about the cost of a one-hour private tutoring session. But with Rosetta Stone, you enjoy a lifetime membership and accessibility on desktop or app. And right now we have a special offer for you guys that is 50% off. That is lifetime access to 25 language courses on Rosetta Stone for 50% off, a complete steal. Do not put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the shit no one tells you about writing listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's visit rosettastone.com slash today. 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today today. Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10am to 5pm Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. Today's guest's first novel, We're All In This Together, was a national bestseller, won the Northern Lit Award, and was
was a finalist for the Stephen Leacock Medal for Humor. Her debut collection of stories, What Boys Like, won the Metcalf Rook Award and was a finalist for the Re-Lit Award. She won the 2006 CBC Literary Prize for Short Fiction, was a finalist for the 2005 Bronwyn Wallace Award and is a graduate of the Optional Residency MFA Program in Creative Writing at the University of British Columbia. Her fiction has appeared in Best Canadian Stories and the Journey Prize Stories. Her second novel, Every Little Piece of Me, was published by McClelland and Stewart in June 2019. She's taught creative writing at Lakehead University and served as the Northwestern Ontario Writers Workshop's e-writer-in-residence in 2015. Currently, she teaches creative writing at the University of Toronto School of Continuing Studies and is a mentor in the Flying Books Mentorship Program. Originally from Halifax, she lived in Thunder Bay for many years before moving to Toronto. It's my pleasure to welcome Amy Jones. Amy, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. I'm a huge fan of the podcast. I'm a huge fan of yours on social media. You and I have never met, but you are freaking hilarious. So it doesn't surprise me that, you know, it just surprises me you didn't win the Stephen Leacock Award. That's all that surprises me. Right. So for our listeners, we're going to be chatting with Amy today about writing and rewriting because... Despite the fact that we, we talk about that a lot on the show, I still hear from people who pop out a manuscript in like three months or six months, and then they're like, woohoo, I wrote a book, I'm good to go, and they, and they start querying. Now, I know that on a previous show, we did have a guest who did that and sold her book, but there's a reason that is the exception and not the rule. And I'm not judging any of you because I did this with the very first book I wrote. I also, I wrote it in six months. I was so impressed with myself for writing a book. I sent it out and of course it was rejected by everyone. So I feel like this is a rite of passage. This is what we writers do. But writing is rewriting. You have got to fall in love with the process of revising and polishing and editing if you want to be a writer. There's simply no other way. And I saw an editor the other day on Twitter who said, I think it's so cute when my authors send me a file that the file name is final. And she's like, ha ha ha, that's hilarious. So cute. So even once you've landed your agent, even once you've landed your editor, you are still going to be editing and revising. So you have to love the process. Amy, tell us a bit about your experience with this. Well, that made me laugh. I think I saw that same tweet. And, you know, I was thinking back to a lot of my file names that will say like title of the manuscript and then underscore final, underscore really final, underscore second final. <laughs> and it just goes on and on because that's sort of, you know, that's part of my process. And I think one of the things that I, I really try to like when people ask me about my revising process and or even my writing process in general, you know, I always want to make it clear that yes, the process is different for everyone and you have to sort of find your own way into it. But I do like to talk about revising and I think you are right. Writing is revising and that, you know, it is something that you have to sort of learn to love because I mean, no matter who you are, no matter what your process is in writing, whether you write 17 drafts or you write two drafts, there are going to be at least more than one draft. And, you know, I know there are some people who can hold a lot of 
their story in their heads before they start writing. And I've seen people do this. You know, my husband's a writer. You know, he writes probably half a quarter of the drafts that I do because he thinks about what he's going to write and he sort of processes it in his head before he starts writing. Whereas I figure everything out on the page. (laughs) I have to start writing in order to understand my characters, in order to know what they're going to do, in order to, you know, figure out the story and what it is that, where it is they're taking me. And I think, you know, a lot of that has to do with the fact that my work is very character driven. So, you know, I sort of liken the revision process to you know, the way you would get to know a a person in real life, you know, when you meet somebody for the first time, you might think, oh, they're really interesting and you click and you want to become their friend, but it takes a really long time to actually like get to know them and get to understand where they're coming from, learn their past, understand how they operate in the world. And I think uh, for me, the revision process is me doing that with my characters and getting to know them so I can really understand what it is they want, what's driving them, what they carry with them, what from their past and you know, what it is that they ultimately want and how they're going to get there. So I can only do that by writing about them. And as a result of that, a lot of the stuff that I write does not make it into the final book. I'm sure that a lot of your listeners who have published books will have the same experience where they have, you know, I have like manuscripts of just like documents full of stuff that I've taken out and I never delete it. I always save it. And I always think, oh, I'm going to use it later. And maybe I use 10% of it at some point, but most of it just sort of stays in another document and as sort of a testament to the amount of stuff that I've taken out. Yeah, all of that's valid. And it sounds like our process is very similar because I'm like you, I write to figure everything out. If I know everything beforehand, I lose all compulsion to write. I have zero interest in writing. And what you said about getting to know someone's true. And you know, what I realized even during COVID is that you can take 10 years to get to know someone and you think you know them really well. And then shit will happen like COVID and it will reveal something in their character, in their nature that you never saw in those 10 years that you are utterly shocked by. Because again, adversity brings out certain things in people that you wouldn't ordinarily see. So even once you think you know these damn characters, something can happen. Like I'll be typing near the end of the manuscript and I think I know them. And one of them will do something. And I'm like, what the hell, man? Where did that come from? And I try and delete it and I can't. And then I'm like, okay, I need to figure out why the hell you did this so that I can understand where we're going. What I want to know, though, Amy, is how does your process from start to finish look? Do you bang out that shitty first chapter and then you start revising? Or do you write a chapter, revise, move on to chapter two, revise? Tell us a bit more about that. Yeah, I mean, I like to, as you said, just, you know, bang out that shitty first draft and get it all down on the page because I feel like my inclination is to want to write something and then go back and revise it. But I also have, there's a part of me that really hates doing work that I don't need to do or doing work twice. So because of, I think like the learning curve between my first novel and my second novel, and now I, you know, I'm, I'm sort of wrapping up on my third novel has been so steep. And one of the things that I realized is when I looked at the first draft that I wrote of we're all in this together. And then I looked at the final draft and I saw just how different they were, like just how much had changed between them. I thought, well, what's the point of sitting here trying to tweak this paragraph to make it sound beautiful and like to make it just have the most perfect metaphor and just 
be this gorgeous description and amazing dialogue if it's just going to get cut to drafts down the road. So even though as a, you know, a perfectionist <laughs> and as a writer who loves words, I my heart really wants to make every line perfect as I'm going through. You know, my brain knows that by the end, that sentence isn't even going to be there probably, or if it is, it's going to exist in another form. So I don't want to spend all this extra time, this precious time that I have doing my writing, tweaking things that aren't even going to end up in the book. So, you know, I think I like to use a lot of metaphors when I talk about my writing because, you know, I find that like it helps me understand what I'm doing, but it also helps me communicate it to others when I'm teaching. I I talk about revision often as like a house that you're building. You know, one of my main missions in life, I would say, is to tell people who want to write that, you know, I see so many people think, okay, sit down and I've written this draft and it's not any good, so I mustn't be a writer. And to me, you know, that I, I think so many people think that like if you have talent, that you'll just sit down and write this amazing first draft. And a lot of people use the words like bad or, you know, I, I did use the words like shitty first draft earlier, but I've tried to stop doing that because I don't think of it as bad in the same way that you wouldn't look at a house that was just being built as bad. You wouldn't look at a house that just had a frame up and a foundation and say, that's a bad house. You would say that's an unfinished house. And then, you know, you also wouldn't go in there and start trying to like hang pictures on the wall before the drywall was up and before it had been painted. And so I sort of think of it in terms of that, like there are, there are steps to the process and you can't judge any step along the way by what you want the finished product to look like, because you're not there yet. You're not, you're not at that point where you're decorating the walls. You're still, you know, putting up the, I know nothing about building houses. So I don't know why I use this as a metaphor, but I'm like, yeah, I think there's drywall and plaster. Um, (laughs) But yeah, I think, you know, so I think, I mean, at least for me, that's, that's what works best for me is thinking about it in terms of, okay, this, at this step, this is what I need it to look like, as opposed to what I need it to look like at the very end. And, you know, there's, if you can find joy in all of that, you know, if you can find joy in those moments that you're talking about where your character does something so completely unexpected and you think, oh my gosh, that's where the story is going. Okay. You know, that to me is the exciting part of writing as is, you know, later on when I can go through and I can think, okay, this sentence, how can I make this better? How can I like really get down into the language of it and find the exact words that I'm looking for, cut out all of those unnecessary redundant words, all that stuff. That part for me is fun too, but it's a different part of the process. You know, it's, it's all leading towards that final product that you're looking for. Yeah, what you've said makes a ton of sense. Something that I'm thinking about is layering when it comes to this kind of approach, because I 100% agree with you. There is zero point in spending three hours on one paragraph, making it as beautiful as you can when, you know, down the line, this whole chapter is going to be taken out. So I agree with you there. But for me, I find like within the first 10 chapters, I keep going back. I keep going back. I cannot continue with the story until those first 10 chapters feel as perfect to me as they can, not at the sentence level or at the line level, but in terms of have I captured this voice? So like for me, I begin writing each book and I experiment with point of view. I'll write chapter one in third person, past, then third person, present. Then I'm like, no, that doesn't work. Then I do first person. Then I'm like, then I'm like, okay, cool. First person is working. I'm going with this. But then I feel like I haven't captured the voice or the character is explaining things in a way that is not consistent with who they are. So then 
I go back again. This actually works with your house analogy because you need a super strong foundation to be able to putting up the walls and everything else. And if you've got a creaky, cracky foundation, you put up the walls and everything's going to fall to shit anyway. So, you know, is that similar for you or you just kind of start strong and... and I wish I could say that. I start strong. Yeah, I mean, I definitely agree with you. I think... I think for me, one of the the parts of that is I tend to, and I think, you know, most writers do this. I do a lot of like manuscript evaluations and, you know, working with students and I see them doing it and I'm like, I do this too, but it's, you know, you want to tell your reader everything, you know, right? Like at the beginning, you want, you're like, I know these characters. I know the story. Here's everything I know. And you're just explaining, explaining, explaining everything about them. And I find for me, yeah, I would say it's probably around the, the 10 chapter mark about like, you know, once once I really feel like I've put the pedal to the metal kind of, and this is going to be a real book, I want to go back and start to think about ways to break up a lot of that explainy stuff about, you know, this is what the character's like. And often I'll have like these big, really dense chunks, paragraphs, just like talking about who the character is and what their backstory is and all that stuff. And, and often those will end up sort of expanding into scenes and they become sort of the building blocks or that like foundation of the later drafts. Like when I look back now, for instance, at the novel I'm working on now, there are some scenes that have been there from the very beginning because they were those foundational scenes where I'm like, okay, this leads to this, leads to this, leads to this. And that's how the story forms. And it's all that connective tissue in between them that is kind of mutable and ends up changing. And, you know, obviously the, they don't say exactly the same, but like the the core of it is there. Is, this is the story I want to tell. And even though sometimes the characters may go off in different directions and do those unexpected things, those are the things that keep it grounded to the story that I originally want to tell. So I think, I think it's, yeah, I definitely, like I wish I could just say, I you know, I just go through and I just let it come because this is what I tell other people to do. Yeah, I love what you've said there because that's something I'll say to students who are like, I don't know where to begin. And I'll say, write down 10 scenes in your book that you know have got to be there. These 10 scenes that you can see them in your mind playing out. Write those scenes down and then you try and figure out how to connect them. And it's true. Every novel has got those scenes that were there from the very beginning. Maybe they were in chapter one and in the final book they end up in chapter 20. Or maybe they were in chapter 20 and in the final book they end up in chapter one. But these are pivotal scenes that you know as a writer that absolutely had to had to be there and the rest is kind of joining the dots and the connective tissue do you ever use placeholders do you ever go okay this is the scene that I know is going to happen and I know that another pivotal scene is x y and z I'm not quite sure how to get there yet so I'm just going to type in brackets put a lot of really cool shit here about this kind of thing and then you just move on Yes, I absolutely do that. And I have to say that I've, I've actually done it where like, I've come to the point where I'm like, Oh my gosh, I'm done this draft time to send it to my editor. And then I realized there's a whole chapter that's missing that just says something happens, you know, in brackets, two lines about what is supposed to happen in the chapter. I'm not a big outliner at the beginning, I, I because I like to allow myself to sort of explore in my first draft or two. But I usually do some kind of outline along the way, if only to keep track of things for myself and to sort of look at the flow. I like to use, I'm a really visual person, so I like to use like different colored Sharpies. And I usually put up like uh, something on my wall on Bristol board or something like that. And so, you know, I do generally have an idea of those scenes and how they're going to happen. And then they do end up moving around quite a bit, as, as you say, like that 
first chapter rarely is still the first chapter when I finished. But yeah, I definitely, by probably like the like fifth draft or so, because I would say most of my novels go through about a dozen drafts, all told. It's been sort of a pattern with my last two, and I think this one as well. You know, so sort of around like draft five or six, I'll have like a rough outline <laughs> of what it what it is I want to do. And so I know what each chapter is is having to do. And so, yeah, I will. Sometimes I'm just like, especially when I have to, when I'm in like revising mode and I have to then write new stuff, just say I'm like, okay, I have to put in this new chapter from this character's point of view or whatever it might be. It, I find it really hard to switch my brain from I'm revising to I'm creating new writing. So often those will be the ones that have the placeholder chapter because I'm like, yeah, I have to find all new material for this. I have to write a whole new scene for this. And I just, I can't, I'm not in that headspace right now. So I'll do it later. And then, you know, I try to remember to do it later. And hopefully I remember before I send it off to my editor. Yeah, that's so interesting because that does happen. You do get into the drafting swing of things. You get to the point, it's like that Kermit the Frog, one of those gifts where he's just pounding away at the typewriter. There's days that it's like that. It's just like bam, bam, bam. And then there's days where, you know, I couldn't draft to save my life. That's when I pull out the red pen and that's kind of when I'm I'm editing. And then those are difficult days for drafting. And then there's days that I can't edit because I just don't have the clarity or the objectivity to do that. So you very smartly don't get rid of anything for good that you take out. Do you use special software or do you just have Word documents that you keep all your deleted stuff in? How do you organize that? I feel like sometimes I'm a bit of a dinosaur in that respect because I do just use Word. (laughs) And, you know, I know a lot of people have told me if I tried to use some software, it might make my life a little bit easier. But I feel like I'm so set in my ways right now. I don't know if I could change So what I generally do is for each revision, I'll have a separate folder, you know, draft seven or whatever it might be. And then I'll have a document called extra. (laughs) Sometimes I'll have like, you know, an extra document for each character. And I just sort of keep everything that's in their point of view separate. And, you know, I do, I do go back and mine it. And often there's stuff that like I take out knowing it's going to go somewhere else in the draft. And I just need to put it somewhere for a little bit before I put it back in. There's other stuff where I'm like, I don't know where this is going to fit. And then I take it out. And I would say 99 times out of 100, it doesn't make it back in. But, you know, I always keep it just to be on the safe side, because not only could it fit in later, but also there may just be like a like one line. You know, sometimes I'll be writing. I'm like, oh, man, I really like described that tree really well at one point or that feeling really well or you know there was this really great line of dialogue and if I don't keep it and I try to recreate it it'll just it won't sound the same and it'll feel awful and then I'll feel awful (laughs) because I'm like oh no I had the perfect one so when I was writing short fiction you know stuff that I cut out would actually spark me to write something completely new because I'm like okay this doesn't fit here but what if there was like a whole story about this character that I completely deleted from this other story so you know in that respect, nothing's ever a waste anyway. Like I, you know, I try to tell my students this all the time is that like anything you write is exercising your muscle, right? So even if you write a hundred extra pages for your novel, it's not a waste because that was you, you know, preparing for your marathon, (laughs) all those runs that you do that aren't the marathon, people don't say that's a waste. So, but again, trying to like take all that stuff and force it back in sometimes when your book has changed so much is, is frustrating. So sometimes you just have to let it go. (laughs) 
Yeah, I know when I try and force something because there'll be something and I'm like, I love this line or this paragraph. I've worked on it. I'm going to put it back in. And nine times out of 10, that's the one that, you know, my agent or my editor will flag and be like, take this up because they just know it shouldn't be there. And I thought I did a wonderful job of sort of ramming it in there. And of course, you know, I didn't. Do you have writing groups or people who read your work along the way? Or do you wait until the work's finished and then you show it to people? Because, you know, on the podcast, we're always saying writing groups are so important. They help support you. They can read your work as you're going along. They can help edit and refine. But, you know, there have been instances where I've seen that writing groups perhaps for a particular project or for a particular person kind of do more harm than good. It gets them in this vortex of doubt and revising the same sort of chapters over and over as opposed to letting them just get the hell on with it. So what is your approach to that? Well, I have been very lucky because I have a really amazing agent and editor who both really understand what it is that I'm trying to do in my work and really are just the most careful and amazing readers. And so most of the drafts that I go through now are with them. So, and I don't like to take on too much extra feedback from people because yeah, I don't want that vision to get muddied in any way. Like I'm like, okay, I trust them and I'm going to just go with what they say. I also, I'm really lucky to be married to a writer. So we um, will exchange drafts and, and read each other's work, which is really good. And obviously I trust him. And um, so, you know, at this point that's, pretty much it. I do have, you know, a really great circle of friends who are all writers who support me in other ways rather than just reading. Or, you know, I can also like send, you know, a paragraph or a chapter to somebody and say, is this working? Or can you help me with this? Especially if it's like an area that they know about or they're familiar with. But generally, I would say that my support group now is is more just for like the writing life and, you know, all of the other things that come around that as opposed to like the actual craft of writing. I mean, that said, I did come from an MFA program where, you know, everything was workshopped and everything was in a group. And I would say most of the people who are part of that support group now came from that program. And I was really, you know, sort of lucky to meet this like group of writers who I really clicked with. But yeah, I found I found it. I did find it a bit overwhelming at the time, you know, being in a workshop with six or seven people, all of whom are arguing about your story and often the stuff that they were talking about wasn't even stuff that I was that seemed relevant to me in in some ways. You know, I wanted to know whether the characters were working or whether the story made sense. And, you know, I, I just found it would often go off on tangents that weren't incredibly helpful. So, you know, I think I do think that, you know, I really do encourage my students to to find at least one or two other people that they can share their work. Because I mean, as you know, there's, there is a point when you're writing where you can't take it any further on your own and you need to have an outside eye on it. But at the same time, it, it can be really hard to find people to trust <laughs> and to, who can actually sort of see what it is you're trying to do and can give you the type of feedback that you need. Please don't give it to your mother <laughs> or like your spouse, unless your spouse happens to be a writer as well, or, you know, whatever it is, because there's people who don't at least have some kind of working knowledge of the process aren't probably not going to give you the type of feedback that you need. And, you know, also to trust your own gut is, is really important too. There really has to be a balance and everyone sort of has to find, I guess, what works for them best. Our listeners, unfortunately, can't pitch your amazing editor, but they certainly can try and reach out to your agent. Could you tell us who your agent is? 
Yes, absolutely. Uh, my agent is Chris Bucci with the Avidas Creative, and you know we've been together for a long time, and he's really great. He's he used to be an editor as well, so he has that eye, and he he really knows knows the market as well, so he can. For our listeners, Amy has been incredibly kind. She has made something available for our Kofi supporters. So those of you who who support us on Kofi will be able to head there and have a look at this additional content. Could you just talk our listeners through that, Amy? What to expect with with, with that? Yeah, absolutely. So I was looking for something that I could share that sort of showed, you know, the the early an early draft of something compared to the final draft of something that I wrote. And, you know, as I, I know I mentioned to you in, our, in my email that it was tough for me to find because there's so much that changes so drastically. And, you know, with my last novel, Every Little Piece of Me, everything from the first, like there was so little from the first draft that actually ended up making it into the final draft. And, but what I wanted to look for was something like I was talking about earlier about one of those foundational scenes. And this just happened to be the first scene of the first draft. And it also ended up strangely being the first scene uh, or the first chapter of the final draft, even though throughout the process, it moved around and it finally came back to its home, which is at the beginning. So it is probably one of the only scenes in the novel that stayed intact enough that I could compare them. So what you'll see is a version the very first version that I wrote, and then the final draft. And then I've also included, it'll probably be a little hard to read, but um, like a compared document. So you can see the changes sort of in, you know, within the document and how how much it changed. And, you know, I would say there's probably like, probably 10 drafts in between there. So not all of the changes that you see in the final draft were all made at once. And so a lot of the, like, where you see, you know, giant strike through paragraphs, that's stuff that, you know, may have ended up in a different part of the book or may have been cut entirely, but that would probably happen fairly early on in the process. And then any of the smaller like language tweaking would come, you know, much later in the process or even in the copy editing stage, you know, just sort of refining the language and all that stuff. So, you know, when you're looking at it, don't just remember that it didn't all happen at once <laughs> and that it, it that happened in stages over the course of my revision process. Amazing. Amy, thank you so much for finding that and for so generously sharing it with our listeners. It's been so wonderful chatting to you today. For our listeners, we will link to Amy's books on our bookshop.org affiliate page so you can click through there to buy them. Amy, thanks so much. We hope to have you back with the next book. Thank you so much. This was so great. Really enjoyed chatting with you. Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. Hey, Bianca, here are two fabulous writing opportunities for your listeners. First, write around the world. It's a chance for you to experience the magic of the AWA method delivered by a wide variety of facilitators, an opportunity to generate surprising new writing and to hear immediately what's working in the piece. And it's a fundraiser that supports the social justice work of Amherst writers. 
funding the training of facilitators to work with underserved and unheard populations, including Black, Indigenous, and other racialized people. A chance to do good work, both creatively and socially. Workshops are by donation, 10, 20, 30 bucks. Go to amherstwriters.org. Click on the Write Around the World link. Workshops are offered at all times throughout the month of May. And as for this summer, haven't you always wanted to spend a week diving into your writing during the day, then diving into a lake afterwards with drinks on the dock after that? Well, come to the Halliburton School of the Arts this summer, a three-hour drive north of Toronto. So worth the effort. This program is operated by Fleming College and is open to writers of all levels of experience. It is a renowned program in an idyllic setting. I will be running a workshop August 15th to 19th using the AWA method. Please go to my website, susiewheelahan.ca, S-U-S-I-E-W-H-E-L-E-H-A-N.ca. Click on Available Workshops. You'll find lots of information about the programs and accommodation possibilities. Come on, dive in. everyone welcome to another session in which Carly and Cece answer your burning questions remember if you have questions about publishing about writing or if you're looking for comps you go to the website biancamaray.com go to the podcast page there is a link there where you can do a voice recording it does cut you off after a minute so you need to be succinct I'm getting constant emails from people going Bianca I started rambling and then it cut me off and then I tried a second time and this happened so perhaps just write down your question first read it to us so that you know it's going to be fine all right, so Carly and Cece, why don't you kick us off with the Q&A? First question. Hello, Bianca, Carly, and Cece. As one of your faithful and grateful multitude of followers, I'm happy to be able to ask you a question. I have dutifully labored to insert timestamps into my family saga. During a consultation with Cece, she told me they were not needed in my novel because my comps were both literary. I was so delighted that I forgot to ask why. So my question is, please, for some clarification about when timestamps are important and when they aren't needed. Thank you for all the encouragement and the knowledge of craft and the business of writing that you so generously give us. Faithful and grateful is how we feel about our listeners. This is such a lovely way to frame the sentiment. So thank you. Thank you for your question. I don't remember this consultation. And encouraging someone to remove a timestamp doesn't sound like something I do since I'm very pro-timestamp. I suppose it's possible that you didn't have timestamps in the pages I read. And when you asked me about them, I told you that you didn't need them because I wasn't missing them because I was very clear on where and when we were. But if I recommended that you remove them, could I please ask that you contact me? If we had a consultation, you have my contact information because I need to understand why I would do that because that wouldn't make any sense. Like I said, like I, the thing about timestamps is that worst case scenario, they're neutral. They're never bad. Not when used properly. The one time that I actually saw someone not use a timestamp properly is when in the middle of a paragraph, they included a timestamp before a flashback. Now that is a totally different thing. Don't do that. But that's not, that doesn't sound like what you're talking about. I also want to say that I don't think timestamps are related to genre at all. It's true that since commercial fiction tends to be more fast paced, timestamps might be more useful since knowing where and when we are in a fast paced novel might be more valuable, but they are recommended regardless of genre. Great. Thanks, Cece. Carly, did you want to add anything to that? 
I was just thinking, I haven't sang the jingle in a while, so maybe it would be a good time for me to sing the, the timestamp jingle for everybody. This is where we need a timestamp, a timestamp, a timestamp. This is where we need a timestamp so that we know where we are. Sorry, I just bent my mouth <laughs> drinking coffee and I was laughing. <laughs> I love it. Absolutely love it. Yeah, so we're pro the timestamps, people. Okay, question two. Hi, I have a question about that space between middle grade and YA novels. So is there such a space where, you know, maybe it's older, called older middle grade or called younger YA? Is there a label for that in between space? And I ask because I've written a novel about a girl who's turning 13, which fits the protagonist age of a middle grade novel, but she is having to deal with a lot of heavy issues of you know, her parents and older kids in her neighborhood involving, you know, depression, addiction, divorce, sexuality, things that, you know, I've heard you just aren't supposed to talk about in middle grade a lot. So what do I call this? And would this scare off agents and editors because it doesn't fit the mold? All right. So middle grade versus YA. This is a great question. I don't do a ton of Kid lit, so I had to turn to the Twitter. So Twitter told me that this would be YA. There's kind of not really any circumstance where this could be covered under middle grade, especially with the more, you know, serious subject matter, even though the age skews a little younger. So definitely call this YA. You can't call it young YA, but definitely call it YA. And just for context there, Carly does not mean she asked a bunch of randos on Twitter what their opinions were. This is when Carly reaches out to her network of agents and editors and etc. etc. Was there anything you wanted to add there, Cece? It's YA. Just go with YA. Right, there we have our answer. Okay, question three. Hi there. Thanks to all of you for doing this. My question is about agents who are close to queries. So is it ever okay to approach them anyway with a query? I'm asking because there's one agent who seems to be forever closed to queries, but I have a project that I think would be well-suited to their list. So thanks so much. Okay, so good question. I don't recommend it unless it's a referral. Typically, most agents who are closed to queries will still consider referrals, which is why I'm making this exception. You know, this situation, it doesn't sound like we're talking about a referral. So I will say that if an agent is close to queries, it's because they need to be. Maybe their client list is full. Maybe they're going through a moment in their personal lives that requires them to take time off or at least take on less work. Maybe for some other reason, but I promise you it is a good and fair reason. I know that your project might be the perfect fit for them on paper, but respecting that agent's boundary is really important and it will send the right message in terms of your own professionalism and sensitivity. So my advice, and I know that it's not you know, necessarily fun to hear, is just be patient. I mean, obviously query other agents. Carly? Yeah, I just want to provide a little bit of context for that as well and just some examples of my own career. So I've been an agent for 12 years. I have closed two queries twice. And only two times. And I'll tell you about the two times. It was when I found out I was pregnant. So I was trying to just like make sure I could cover my own client list and then through my maternity leave. So those were the only two times I've ever closed to queries. There are some agents, obviously, that close to queries more often. Everybody has their own kind of scenario in their life. But just letting you know, that's when I was closed. So I was absolutely not looking for clients, right? If we're closed, we're not looking for new clients. But I will say there are two reasons, and Cece touched on one of them, which is 
referrals. If you do know somebody personally that is repped by that agent, you can reach out to them and, and again, try to get a referral. Or if they're attending a conference, you know, some agents do conferences where they'll do pitch events. So conferences and referrals would be the only ways to kind of get around these query closures, in my opinion. But but as Cece said, really, it's, you know, if somebody's closed, then they're closed. Do you mean, Carly, that if you met somebody at a time when they were at a conference and the agent said, send it to me, I would be interested once it's ready? Because I'm assuming an agent wouldn't be taking pictures at a conference if they're closed. That would be a good assumption. But some agents say they're closed to queries and then still do conferences. So either way, if you have met them before, that that is an opening if you have their, their email address. So obviously respecting boundaries is important. But I do know agents that are close to queries, but still will do conferences because, you know, they are either they've already agreed to it or, or something like that. So yep, just follow the guidelines as best you can. Do your best. Awesome. Thank you. Okay, next question. Hi, Bianca, Carly and Cece. My question is around choosing agents to query when they have already sold and a book has been published that are somewhat similar. So on the one hand, I can see the positive of that because it shows that they've already been interested in that kind of work. I could also see the negative in that if they already have represented that, have already pitched that to editors, maybe they feel like they've kind of already cashed in those chips, if that makes sense. So I never really know whether to pitch those agents and you know allude to that same title that they have already represented or whether it might be too close. Anyway, would appreciate your thoughts on that. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. All right. So I think this is this is a tricky one. I would generally say that even if they've sold something relatively similar and it seems like they might not be open to it, I would probably still query because it shows they have kind of a track record in that space. They know editors that were looking for that sort of thing. And some editors might have missed out on buying the other project. And, the, and you know, this, this person clearly has a network for people that want books in this space. The other thing is you need to think about your career as a whole. So if this agent does seem like the right fit in the, the larger scheme of things, even if this one particular project maybe has some overlap, I would try to be thinking about the long game here and just think, you know, this could potentially be a great fit for the long run, because obviously we all want our debut projects to sell. We all want our books to sell. But if this project doesn't work out, you know, you also want to pick agents that you think will work out for the next book and the next book and the next book. So this probably seems like somebody you would want to keep on your list. Lovely. Thank you. Cece? I just want to echo what Carly said about the long-term strategy. An agent is someone who comes in when you're trying to sell your debut novel, but that is not the main thing that an agent does. An agent is there, hopefully for the duration of your career, and that kind of long-term strategic thinking is really valuable to all parties. And you know, another thing I'd say is check out their wish list, and especially their wish list on social media, since we update those a lot more frequently than on our agency's website. Does their wish list still include works in the vein of your own work and obviously of this other book they sold? Because chances are it does. And that's indicative of the fact that they're still looking for titles in that space. And I also think that, you know, it depends on what you mean by how, how identical. So for example, if they just sold a Cinderella retelling and your book is a Cinderella retelling, yeah, that might be too similar, although what Carly said definitely still stands. But if, you know, they just sold a book club fiction title with elements of magical realism and that's your project, that's not too similar at all. So, you know, use your common sense and definitely check out the agent's social media updates. 
Wonderful. Thank you. All right. That's it for today's questions. You know where to find us. If you have these questions, please can ask. We do have a lot of people reaching out on Twitter and and asking questions. We do try and reply there, but then of course, only that person sees the reply. So if you do have a question, instead of reaching out on social media to ask us, please do record it so that everyone else can benefit from, from the answering of that question. Thank you, Collie and Cece. Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another comp session where we have a fabulous indie book buyer joining us to give us comps. Once again, it's Emily Summer from East City Bookshop in Washington, D.C. Emily, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me back. Right, so let's kick it off with that first one. Hello, I'm looking for comps for my upmarket literary fiction manuscript. The protagonist is Liza, a middle-aged genderqueer woman who struggles with some substance abuse and mental instability. Most notably, she hears her deceased mother and father's voices while no one else does. The narrator, Liza's younger sister Alana, explores the traumatic events and family skeletons that culminate in Liza's suicide death. Alana questions whether the voices were a symptom of grief or pathology, and whether her sister really was so crazy after all. I've thought of Ruth Ozeki's The Book of Form and Emptiness, which I adore, but the tone isn't quite the same. Thank you so much for your help. I love the podcast. Okay, so our sister story, where one sister is trying to sort of figure out what led to her sister's suicide. The immediate comp for this, for me, is All My Puny Sorrows by Miriam Taves another wonderful Canadian writer. I adore Miriam Taves. I love everything that she's written, but All My Puny Sorrows is a sister story. It is one sister struggling with her sister's depression and decision to leave this world. So I would absolutely look at that. Miriam Taves has such a unique voice that I'm not sure if the voice fits, but the subject matter absolutely does. And then I thought too of a book that's coming out on July 5th by an author named Sopan Deb, D-E-B, and it's called Kea Das's Second Act. And it's the story of a queer teen who dies young and her parents and her siblings are left figuring out sort of the story of her life. I think that that one will be a good comp as well. And it's coming out on July 5th. I expect it to do really well. I think another one that might work here is Julia Gloss. She won the National Book Award in like 2001, I think, for Three Junes. But the book that I'm thinking about is I See You Everywhere. I don't know if I ever read that one, but I loved Three Junes. So I'm going to have to put that one on my list. I love a sibling yeah, story. Yeah, she's, she's an autobiography for me. And that was a sibling story. I must be honest, it was, I, I won't say it was Julia Glass's best work because there were instances where I felt the sister, it was 
dual POV. And I felt that there were times that the sisters' voices were too similar. And I was getting a bit confused between which sister was which. But I think that would definitely work as a comp as well. And just on what Emily said about All My Puny Sorrows, that has been made into, I'm not sure if it's a movie or a show. I saw it being advertised on some Canadian site recently. So so look out for that as well. The most heartbreaking, beautiful story. Absolutely adored that one. Oh, anything she writes, I will yeah. read forever. Just the best. Okay, next one. This voice message is for your guest booksellers. I'm hoping they can help me find some comps for my book called Falling Awake. It's an upmarket women's fiction novel centered around 30-year-old Amber Haynes. Amber's barely making ends meet, but she's mostly happy. She has two things left in life that she loves, her grandfather and their family farmhouse where they live together in rural Kansas. One day, Amber finds her deceased mother's old sleeping eye mask. She discovers something quite unexpected. When she falls asleep with the eye mask on, it takes her to a different reality. This dream world provides much of what Amber wishes she had in real life. Money, success, and a connection to her mom. But when her estranged uncle threatens to repossess the family farmhouse and separate Amber and her grandfather, she's torn between living and reality or her dreams. Themes include complicated family dynamics, redefining identity, and the sometimes blurry line between reality and dreams. Okay, so next we have Falling Awake. And here's one where I said last episode that I finally had some manuscripts that were giving me TV and movie vibes for comps. And so for this one with our 30-year-old who's living in Kansas with her grandfather, I thought of the great brand new Bridget Everett series called Somebody Somewhere, which if you have not watched it, it is exceptional. But it's about a woman, she's probably, she's in her 40s, who comes back home to Kansas, but it's very Kansan. It's very much a family story. It's very much about figuring out whether you want to stay home home, where it's comfortable, our complicated family ties, finding yourself with a found family outside and just sort of how you imagine your life to be. So I would absolutely recommend checking out somebody somewhere. I think that sounds like a really good comp. And then I believe I've mentioned her in past episodes, but anytime there is upmarket women's fiction with a light element of sort of what if, or a little bit of the fantasy where you can get glimpses of what might have been or these other chances, I think of Rebecca Searle. So I would look at all of Rebecca Searle's work because they all read like upmarket, very commercial, wonderfully voicey fiction, but they all have this strand of like, what if I could have dinner with Audrey Hepburn and the boyfriend who broke my heart? Or what if I could meet my mother when we were the same age and I could get to know her as a friend? Or what if I could see a glimpse of what's going to happen to me five years from now? So I would absolutely look at Rebecca Searle. And I would also look at Karen Thompson Walker, who I think writes similar books that have a slightly speculative bend to them, but they're really sort of family stories, town stories, and books about identity and finding our place. Somebody who I think who does that occasionally is Marianne Keyes, the Irish writer. Not often, but when she does do it, I really do enjoy it. I love her. I went yeah. I, I went through a phase years ago where I read everything that she had written. Yeah. Okay, next one. It's a picture book. Uh, he has some recipes, but there's a storyline at the same time where a parent doesn't want a parent that day and the child takes over and cooks for the whole family. Thank you. Okay, so we have a picture book this time, which I loved hearing about a picture book. And I thought because this is a book that contains recipes and food references, I thought of several. One is a brand new book called Tofu Takes Time by Helen Wu. These are, of course, all picture books. And this is the story of a child learning to make 
tofu. There is also Fry Bread by Kevin Noble Maillard, which came out a few years ago. I don't want to swear that it won one of the big awards, but I feel like I feel like it did. There's another book called Thank You, Omu by Ogi Mora. And all three of those are these lovely, beautiful picture books where you see children learning about cooking, learning about their specific cultural traditions. I think all three of those would be beautiful comps. And then because this book has the added thread of the parent has checked out and the child is taking over, that sort of naughty mischief angle made me think of a picture book writer like David Shannon or Ryan Higgins, who managed to capture that sort of silly, fun, kids behaving badly or animals behaving badly in a really fun way. So I would, I think that together those would be great comps. Wonderful. Thank you. Next one. Hi, I am looking for comps. My manuscript is a memoir about my experience becoming a mother and the trials of being a young woman of color in the U.S. maternal health care system. My book also touches on being a NICU parent. I'm struggling finding comps that are written from other women of color that aren't guides or handbooks on pregnancy and motherhood. My book isn't meant to be a guide, more bringing a new perspective into the mom books category. I hope that made sense. Thank you so much. Okay, next we have, again, you know, I love memoir by now. This memoir of motherhood by a young mother of color navigating the maternal health care system. So my first recommendation is a new memoir by a writer named Taylor Harris. Her memoir is called This Boy We Made. And it is not about Taylor navigating the healthcare system as an expectant mother. It is about her navigating the healthcare system as a mother of a child who has an undiagnosed problem and trying to get to the heart of that. But the fact that she is a black woman in the American South is a very vital element to that story. So I think that's a perfect comp. And then I thought, too, of Memorial Drive by Natasha Trethewey, which came out last year to great acclaim. And that is not that is actually a daughter's memoir. It is the memoir of her mother's murder and her coming to terms with it over many decades. But that is specifically, too, about her mother as a domestic violence survivor, as a black woman, again, in the South. I don't know if this one's in the South, but that adds to the layer of her navigating these difficult systems. And Natasha really minds that in terms of like, what does it mean to be a black woman who's dealing with these things and is trying to do all the right things and is trying to move through these systems that are not made for her. So I think both of those are are really on point. I'm adding them to my list and I'm honestly not much of a memoir person. So thanks for that, Emily. (laughs) If someone's not a memoir person, but they are intrigued by Memorial Drive, the audiobook version of it is impeccable. Natasha reads it. She is a poet. She has probably the greatest voice I've ever heard for reading. It is a pleasure to listen to it. So I read it and I listened to it. It's that good. I think I'm going to listen to it. So there we go. Thank you for that. Next one. My novel follows the untold story of a freedom fighter who used her wiles, her beauty, and her charm to defend France, the country that granted her asylum after the Bolshevik Revolution. She put that goal ahead of everything else, her marriage, her health, her life. I need a comp for the other themes, adoption, immigration, the importance of friendship, toxic mother-daughter relations, and a tragic but emotionally charged love story. Thanks so much for your help. 
Okay, so next we have our Untold Freedom Fighter. And I loved this one because there's clearly so much going on in it. So it sounds like our writer already has historical fiction comps and really wants comps for so many of these other themes. I would probably need to know more about whether it's adoption or immigration or friendship, to know what is really the standout or what aspect of that to comp to. But I thought of two books that I think are historical fiction that do have lots of other elements in them that might fit. The first is The Secrets We Keep by Laura Prescott. And that one has like a Dr. Zhivago Cold War angle, but it's also very much about relationships the workplace. There's a lot of other things going on in there. It's not strictly, it has spies, but it's not a spy novel. So I think there might be strands in there that would work. And then I thought too of Transcription by Kate Atkinson. So Kate Atkinson is someone who can write anything. I think she can write any genre. And in Transcription, she's written a very surprising to me as the reader, historical fiction novel that really is about sort of identity, our personal relationships, how our personal relationships shift and change and how they relate to these secrets that we're keeping. So I think both of those might, there might be something in either of those that this writer would relate to. Yeah, her Jackson Brody, her earlier Jackson Brody ones are my absolute, absolute favorite. I know she only became famous in the US for Life After Life, but I had been reading her for ever since like her first Jackson Brody series based in Edinburgh, you know, in Scotland, etc. And I freaking loved it. So good. Yes, I think she's one of those people that can just she can do anything because her mysteries are so good. Her historical fiction is so good. And then even before Jackson Brody, she wrote behind the scenes at the museum, which is excellent. So yeah, that was the one during the Edinburgh Fringe Festival, I think. I think so. Yeah, yeah. So good. Okay, next one. Hello, I'd like some help finding comps for my romance novel. My only choice to date is Fifty Shades of Grey. My book is written in third person, dual POV, and features two protagonists trying to find a kinky connection in Y2K Madison. Suggested works can be first person or represent LGBTQ characters, but the best fit will be a contemporary, authentic story featuring ordinary humans looking for an extraordinary kind of love. Many thanks from a longtime listener who looks forward to every week's podcast. Okay, so I will admit to being a little bit stumped by this romance where our best comp as of yet is Fifty Shades of Grey. But I loved a book from a few years ago called In at the Deep End by Kate Davies. And that is about a woman sort of struggling to find both sexual connection and romantic connection and finding out what it means. There is an element of sort of BDSM at one point in the book, but I think that that one might be a literary comp for a book of this type where people are searching for connection. In at the Deep End is a lesbian story. This writer mentioned LGBTQ and sort of just a little bit of kinkiness. So I would look at In at the Deep End by Kate Davies, which I really enjoyed. So for our listeners, if all else fails, Google books to read if you loved and then put in the book title because there's often articles written about it, you know, so books to read if you loved Fifty Shades of Grey and somewhere in there, I bet you someone will have written an article about it and you can also, you know, scan through those titles and see if anything's a bit more appropriate. Okay, we're done. Wow. We did our list. 
Amazing. So once again, a big thank you to Emily Summer from East City Bookshop for coming and helping us with our comps. If the rest of you would like to call in, go to my website, biancamaray.com, go to the podcast page. There's a link there where you can call in either with general queries, which Carly and Cece will tackle, or request for comps. Remember, the more information you give us in terms of tone, in terms of themes, etc., the better Emily can do in terms of those comps. Thanks, Emily. Thank you so much. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes. Great news! The beta reader matchup is now open for March. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre and time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 31st of March, with the matchup emails going out on the 1st of April. The only April fools will be those who haven't signed up. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the Beta Reader Matchup tab, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Hello, listeners. This is your co-host, Cece, and I'm so excited to tell you about my upcoming webinar, Writing Tension. Join me on Thursday, April 11th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time via Zoom to learn all about creating tension, conflict, and stakes in a story. This is a super popular writing webinar I offer, and it's filled with expert breakdowns, practical tips, formulas for cracking these elements, and real examples from novels that will help you dial up the tension in your story in actionable ways. And this year, I'm doing something extra. On the Monday after the webinar, we're having a live, cozy 90-minute Q&A session in which you'll get a chance to ask your questions about the webinar. That means we'll get to hang out for two days total. And if you can't attend the webinar and or the cozy Q&A session, don't worry. They will be recorded and shared with everyone who's registered. There are limited spots for this webinar in this new format. So if you're interested, check out the link on my Instagram page and sign up. The handle is at C.C. Lira Agent. That's at C-E-C-E-L-Y-R-A Agent. I hope to see you there. Great news. The beta reader matchup is now open for March. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre and time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 31st of March, with the matchup emails going out on the 1st of April. The only April fools will be those who haven't signed up. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the Beta Reader Matchup tab, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Hello, listeners. This is your co-host, Cece, and I'm so excited to tell you about my upcoming webinar, Writing Tension. Join me on Thursday, April 11th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time via Zoom 
to learn all about creating tension, conflict, and stakes in a story. This is a super popular writing webinar I offer, and it's filled with expert breakdowns, practical tips, formulas for cracking these elements, and real examples from novels that will help you dial up the tension in your story in actionable ways. And this year, I'm doing something extra. On the Monday after the webinar, we're having a live, cozy 90-minute Q&A session in which you'll get a chance to ask your questions about the webinar. That means we'll get to hang out for two days total. And if you can't attend the webinar and or the cozy Q&A session, don't worry. They will be recorded and shared with everyone who's registered. There are limited spots for this webinar in this new format. So if you're interested, check out the link on my Instagram page and sign up. The handle is at agent. That's at C-E-C-E-L-Y-R-A agent. I hope to see you there.